Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. And before we start, uh, on that note, I'd like to uh, I'd like to thank take this opportunity to thank all of you who are listening to the program and are clearly telling other people about this program so that we can frankly help other people. Um, I was delighted to learn last week that we have passed 27 million cumulative downloads of this program since launching it 30 months ago. And we've also hit a very important, actually passed a very important milestone a while ago. We're at 40,000 downloads for each new episode within the 30 days of publishing a new episode, which puts us firmly in the top 1% of all business-related podcasts. And um, uh, I, I, cannot, I cannot thank you enough not just for, for downloading, but clearly you're listening, clearly you're telling other people that, that they would benefit from listening to this program. And this is why I do it. You know, we don't have commercials on this, not monetizing this in any way. Um, this, is just, this is just a way that, that we as the Decision Vision team give back and, and try to share some, some wisdom, some advice, some counsel, maybe even some in infotainment along the way um, to help you become better or more confident in the decisions um, that you're making. And so I'd just like to take a moment to thank you for, for all your support of the program, and I hope that we'll justify your support in the future. I'd like to thank Brady Ware, who's given me the time and resources to do this podcast. Could not do it without them. I you know, could not do it without Business Radio X. And of course, we couldn't do it without all of our guests, because um, if I were doing this podcast by myself, it'd be two episodes probably the intro and then the final episode, because I don't know enough to carry a show on my own. Um, so without the guests who devote, who donate their time and expertise about the program, this really wouldn't be much of a program at all. And so without further ado, I'll introduce today's topic, which is should I sell to or form a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC? And it, you may be familiar with SPACs, you may not. It really depends on how tied you are with the financial markets. And we don't do a lot of hardcore finance on, on the program, but every once in a while we do, because there is something that there will be something that comes up that I think warrants us covering it. If nothing else, that you're aware of, of what that financial, that financial vehicle, that financial decision is out there. And you may find yourself with that decision. And, and so our guests will come on and tell us exactly what a SPAC is. But, but if you've, if you've found that you've been hearing about them a lot, it's not by accident. 
Um, you know, a SPAC is in, in effect a poor person's IPO. Some people say a rich person's IPO, but our guests will talk about that. Um, but in 2016, there are about 20 SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies that were formed um, in 2016. And in 2020, there are over 400 with an average size over $300 million in capital raised per transaction. That's, that's a big deal, right? 400 times $300 million and be $12 billion of capital. That's, that's a lot of capital out there. And that's why you're hearing a lot about it. And even if you're not necessarily going to be taking a company into an exit, into a public liquid liquidity event or quasi-public liquidity event, you probably still want to know what a SPAC is. And you may find yourself in the position of asking yourself, is this something that we could do with our company? And finding out whether or not that's a realistic or desirable uh, path is what we're all about here on the Decision Vision programs to help you understand what it is and what kind of decision might you have to make and what is a good framework in which you might make that decision. So joining me today is our guest, David Panton, who is a co-founder of Navigation Capital Partners LP. They're they're a long-standing, one of the premier investment banking, private equity, and merchant banking houses in Atlanta. I've been around Cyber in Atlanta, which is at least 20 years. And they've made growth and buyout investments in middle market and operating companies. In partnership with Goldman Sachs, their portfolio has included investments in over 40 operating companies representing equity investments of approximately $800 million. David is a managing partner of Navigation Capital's SPAC Operations Group, which makes equity investments in these special purpose acquisition companies. In 2019, Navigation Capital Partners, or NCP, launched their SPAC Operations Group, which builds on their legacy of transforming relatively small, high-growth companies into medium-sized ones and selling them to larger private equity firms to take them to the next level. In the 15 years since its inception, NCP has invested $399 million in 51 portfolio companies, including nine SPACs. And for more information, you can visit navigationcapital.com. In addition to his professional roles, David is a former senator in the upper house of the parliament in Jamaica. He was named by Buyouts Magazine as one of the eight buyout pros of under 40 to watch in 2009, and by the Atlanta Business Chronicle as one of those 40 under 40 rising stars in 2011. He is a member of the Atlanta chapter of the Young Presidents Organization and is a former member of the Atlanta Group of Tiger 21 and Leadership Atlanta Class of 2012 the second best class ever, second only to the class of 2014. And if you're in the Leadership Atlanta group, he's laughing. You know exactly what that means. David received a doctorate in management studies from Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, a JD with honors from Harvard Law School, where he was elected president of the Harvard Law Review, and an AB with high honors in public policy from Princeton University. David, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Mike. Great to be here. So, uh, David, um, a SPAC is a fairly technical concept and in some ways, I think kind of a subtle one. So I'd like to ease our audience in a little bit. Can you describe what a SPAC is? Sure. So let's start with the, 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 the acronym SPAC. It stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. And that describes um, in, in broad part. So let's just break it down. The first part is special purpose. So uh, this is a, well, let's start with the company part. So the first is it's a company, all right? So it's not any newfangled instrument. It's not an NFT. It's not Bitcoin. It's just a company. And it's a company that is publicly traded. So typically you will have a sponsor 
for us back, a special purpose acquisition company, they will form a company. That company will be taken public in, through the traditional process known as the IPO process, an initial, initial public offering. So a sponsor's pay for the costs of taking a company public. Company is now public, but unlike traditional public companies which have operations, a SPAC has one asset, and that asset is cash. So it raises capital. As you said, the average uh, investment amount, average amount raised in, in, in SPACs so far this year is around 300 million. And by the way, let me just correct you on the math there. You mentioned 400 SPACs, 300 million. It's not 12 billion, it's 120 billion. I knew so I, I thought I was off by a zero and I couldn't do it while I was talking behind the microphone. So thank no you for worries. bailing me out there. So there's 120 billion raised in SPAC. So these are public offerings by these companies, which raise so far this year, $120 billion. So they have one asset, which is cash. Then the SPAC sponsor has a certain time period, which is usually 24 months, but it could be 18 months, could be 12 months in which to find an operating company. So think of a SPAC as a blank check company is what it's known as, or a special purpose vehicle with cash whose objective is to find an operating company that can acquire or merge into within a certain period of time, typically 24 months, so two years. At the end of that two-year period, if the sponsor has not found a company, then this is a very unique element of SPACs, which really doesn't exist in any other investment category that I know of. The sponsors have to give the money that was invested by the investors in the IPO back to the investors. That's known as a redemption. So there's a redemption right that investors in SPACs have, SPAC IPOs have. When the company is found, the sponsors have to go back to the investors and get it approved by the investors in the SPAC IPO or whoever the shareholders are in the company at that time. And when that is done, if the shareholders approve the deal, and it, the good news is that happens almost all of the time, then the operating company, which is now merged into the SPAC, becomes the new publicly traded company. So the last thing I'll say on this is that effectively what a SPAC is, is a company with cash, which has a certain time period in which to merge with an operating company, typically a private company, that makes that private company public. So it's a mechanism of doing effectively a reverse merger of a private company into the public SPAC that was raised. And then after that, that company is a straightway public company. So Hostess, as an example, we've all seen Hostess Twinkies, was a company owned by a private equity firm. Someone set up a SPAC, another firm called Wars. That SPAC approached Hostess and said, Hostess, we want to effectively take you public. They negotiated a transaction and Hostess did a reverse merger into the special purpose acquisition company. They changed the name to Hostess and today Hostess is just a publicly traded company. It was a mechanism for Hostess to go public. That's interesting. I, you know, I did not know. I, mean, I knew some of the hosts of the story. I, I guess they must have been effectively bought out of bankruptcy to so, get into the SPAC. Well, so it, I want to be clear on that. Um, very, in fact, I don't think a single SPAC has bought a company out of bankruptcy. So okay. I don't want people to think that this is just a mechanism to buy companies out of bankruptcy. Yep. In fact, SPACs are not good for that. Um, Hostess did go through a bankruptcy. Um, they were bought by a private equity firm, actually two private equity firms. 
those private equity firms were growing the company and they were trying to exit from their investment. And a SPAC approached them and said, why don't you merge your now rehabilitated company and growing company with less debt into a public vehicle? And that's what they did. And it's actually okay. been a very good investment. Burger King, by the way, was also a SPAC. Hmm. Didn't go through a bankruptcy, just a good company owned by a private equity firm, was seeking a mechanism to, um, to exit or actually to facilitate liquidity. And one important thing, and I think this may be important for your listeners who are entrepreneurs, executives, the vast majority of SPACs, the shareholders of the company, the private company, become the majority shareholders of the public company. So it really is largely a mechanism if you are the owners of a private company and want to go public, it's just a mechanism of going public. So you have options if you're a private owner, right? You could sell to private equity. You could uh, go public in the traditional IPO process. Or if you want to exit, you could use a SPAC route. So think of it as a mechanism if you're the owner of a company of taking your company public, but through a SPAC, not through the traditional IPO process. So the way you described is, is interesting. Let me let me come back to you. With, first of all, I guess one of the object lessons, anytime you think of a Twinkie now, you can think of a SPAC. Anytime <laughs> you do Twinkies, remember a SPAC is making that possible. Or if you're eating a Whopper, that was a SPAC. Or a Whopper, exactly. <laughs> you're eating a Whopper, exactly. So, um, but it, you know, the, 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 the fact that the owners of the company themselves are providing the capital in a way, is it fair to say in a way this is a mechanism for a company to kind of take itself public as opposed to making an offering to external shareholders and hoping that they, they buy? Um, yes and no. So, okay. And I do want to clarify one thing that you said. You said that the owners of the company are providing the capital. The SPAC is providing the capital. So if you were an owner of a company, why would you choose a SPAC over a traditional IPO? Maybe that's one way of thinking about it. Um, and, and there are reasons why some companies go public through SPACs and the reasons why they go through the traditional process. Last year in 2020, half of the IPOs in America, more than half, were SPAC IPOs. So in, in half of the cases, um, uh, owners of companies chose the SPAC process over the traditional IPO process. And there are pros and cons of each. Let me just go through them quickly. The biggest advantages of a SPAC are number one, you actually are merging into an entity which typically has a board and has individuals in place who typically know that industry. So most SPACs are industry focused. Hmm. And there isn't just an advantage, especially if you're a smaller company that's growing, in just having a strategic partner and a board of directors or people who can add value to you. That doesn't apply in a traditional IPO. If you're doing a traditional IPO, you're just going public. There's no, I mean, you can add people to your board. But you don't really have a strategic partner. That's one advantage of a SPAC. Um, the second advantage is you have built-in capital. And that capital is typically the capital that was raised in the IPO. Now, there's a risk that that capital can go away. So that's a negative of a SPAC, which is the capital may be there, it may not be there. But there's the SPAC market has effectively created a way to ensure that the capital is there. And that mechanism is something known as a pipe. So when you think of SPACs, I know there's lots of acronyms, special purpose acquisition companies, don't think of SPACs without a pipe. SPACs on the front end, pipe on the back end. What does a pipe stand for? A pipe stands for a private investment in a public entity. And all that is, is a private placement at the time that the SPAC has identified a target company with which it wants to merge. 
And then they go to investors, typically long-term fundamental investors, in public companies to say, listen, why don't you participate in this company and give us additional capital? Or if not new capital, a backstop against the redemptions from the capital that was raised in the initial IPO. And so that gives some certainty because that capital is fully committed capital that the new the company, which is going public through this uh, SPAC process, will actually have capital that's needed. So it is a mechanism for the owners of the company to either take some cash off the table because they want to get some cash and or to have new cash going into the company on the balance sheet, which is more likely in, in most of the most recent SPACs and most of the SPACs that, you know, SPAC transactions that have occurred this year. So it provides capital. Um, and then the third advantage is certainty, more certainty than an IPO. And an IPO, you may or may not go public. It may or may not work. In a SPAC transaction, you're negotiating a merger. And once you've negotiated that merger, and especially if you put a pipe in place, there's a very, very high likelihood the deal is going to get done. In the IPO market, may happen, it may not happen. And one of the reasons, actually, that SPACs boomed last year is that the IPO market, because of what happened with COVID, et cetera, sort of declined. The market was jittery. But because SPACs have committed capital in a, or have capital, a pool of capital available to them, and they do these mergers, it made it easier for SPAC transactions to get done. And then the final advantage, I would say, of a, um, a SPAC IPO versus a traditional IPO, uh, and there are several others, but these are the primary ones. I mean, speed is, is, is another uh, a reason that you, know, you can probably do a SPAC IPO in a much shorter time than a traditional IPO. Um, but the last one I would focus on is the ability to set the valuation of the company. And what I mean by that is you've probably seen that when other companies have gone public, you've seen that they go public at, say, $10 a share. And then you hear that, oh, there's a big pop, and it went from 10 to 20 or 30 or 40. And that sounds great for the investor, but it's actually terrible for the owners of the company because they've, if they could have gone public at 40, then they should have gone public at 40. Yep, they left <laughs> 30 bucks a share on the table. They left 30 bucks a share on the table. And that is a huge, huge issue. In a SPAC transaction, you basically value it at, say, 40 or 30 or whatever the number is, and that's the price. It's very, very rare that you see this big pop. So you're able to maximize the valuation of a company in a SPAC transaction because it's a negotiated transaction with another party and a merger as opposed to just going to the market. And, you know, listen, I work with investment banks. I love investment banks. I don't want to say anything negative about investment banks, but investment banks are in the business of making money. And they're in the business of helping their friends. And the investment banks who are the underwriters of IPOs and SPACs. So we work with investment banks all the time. They have historically gone and given IPO allocations to their friends, institutional investors that they like, and said, hey, we'll get you in at a certain price. They'll typically negotiate a price that's relatively low because everyone wants the price to go up. And therefore, the investors do very well. But the actual owners of the company typically leave a lot of money on the table in a traditional IPO and SPAC IPOs avoid that. And that amount, by the way, is billions and billions of dollars. So it's not an insignificant um, uh, 
consideration. Yeah, I, I've been in the investment banking business, and I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Don't disagree with it. I could easily divert the podcast that way, but maybe we'll have you back on. We'll talk about that in another episode. That's a different. Um, but you, you know, you brought something up that I want to make sure that I I covered, which is. Uh, we're, we're hearing a lot about SPACs now, but they've actually been around for quite some time. They're actually not a new vehicle. They're just new to a lot of people. And granted, COVID has perhaps, as so many things, right, given a lot of momentum to things that are already taking place. But why have SPACs suddenly become so popular in the last few years? No, it's a great question. Um, my view, and this is just my view. <laughs> yep is that it really came down to one transaction. Hmm. And that one transaction was a SPAC raised by two of the legends in the SPAC world, a guy named Jeff Sagansky, a guy named Harry Sloan. And they, they raised a SPAC called Diamond, um, Diamond Eagle Acquisition Corp. Almost every SPAC has the name Acquisition Corp at the end. They raised it in, in May of 2019, and they raised $400 million. Their underwriter was Goldman Sachs. So Goldman Sachs helped raise $400 million from a large number of institutional shareholders. The investors in Diamond Eagle who invested the $400 million received units. Those units, which is one of the differences between a traditional IPO and a SPAC IPO, is that you receive units rather than just shares. But the units include a bundle of securities, which includes typically one share. And then, very importantly, they receive a warrant or a half a warrant or a third of a warrant. That warrant is another security, like a share, which gives them a right to buy shares in the future. So it's a... It's, a, it's, a, it's an it's option, a, effectively. It's an option. That's exactly right. It's an option to participate if the price goes up in the future. And typically, the almost all SPACs go public at $10 per share. And the options are typically priced at eleven fifty. So that's what's known as the strike price of the option. So if the stock goes up to eleven fifty, then the warrant slash option is valuable. And if it goes price goes down, it doesn't have value. But because there's potential value, these option these options slash warrants trade. They trade separately from the shares. There's an option market. You can buy these options. A lot of hedge funds invest in these options, um, and they have a, a value. And they're typically around 50 cents. So 50 cents on a $10 investment by the investors in the IPO, you know, works out to be a 5% return, which is pretty good, actually, especially in a market where interest rates are relatively low. Um, and you still have the shares if the price goes up. So, and, and by the way, the vast majority of investors, which you should know and your listeners should know, in SPAC IPOs are hedge funds. Because this is a financial instrument. Mm -hmm. It's not an operating company. And hedge funds love you know, financial instruments. Yes, they do. Downside protection and upside potentiality. Yep. So the investors invested in Diamond Eagle. Majority of the investors were, in fact, uh, hedge funds. They gave $400 million to Diamond Eagle. And within a very short period of time, they identified not one, but two companies that they could put together to take public. The two companies, one of them you would know probably fairly well, the other one you probably wouldn't know. The, the one you would know is called DraftKings. And DraftKings is a, an online gaming company. Yep, fan, so, daily fantasy sports. Exactly right, fantasy sports, et cetera. And as you know, online 
gambling is many states are you know decriminalizing yep. um, online gaming it used to be illegal now less so and there was a supreme court case which has made it you know almost impossible to ban online gaming so huge 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 business um unprofitable business by the way but fast growing they it wasn't that large they were doing about 300 million in revenues they wanted to put it together with another company and the name of that company was called sb tech which actually was an israeli company which provided the technology platform for gaming yep. for not just for DraftKings but for other companies as well the combined two companies had about 400 million in revenues uh, maybe a little less and were valued at $3 billion, a very high multiple of revenues. They're both unprofitable. But the reason they had that valuation was because of the growth rate. They announced the deal in December of 2019, okay? And the price didn't move much from $10. As most, most announcements, price moves a little bit, but not much. They then went onto the market and went out to long-term investors and said, you should invest in DraftKings. And a lot of people were interested in it. And they had an analyst day, which very few companies have done. And then they did something. And one huge difference between SPACs and a traditional IPO, I should have said this earlier, actually, is that in a SPAC IPO, you are able to provide forward-looking projections, which you cannot do in a traditional IPO. So in the case of DraftKings, even though the company was unprofitable today, they could say, we are planning to grow the company to a billion dollars of EBITDA in the future. And that's what they said. Now, if you did that in a traditional IPO, the SEC would say, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't say what you're going to do in the future. Right. So one advantage which of SPACs. Which is bizarre, by the way, but. It, 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 it's a little it's bit bizarre. bizarre. They don't like me to do that, by the way, but go ahead. You know, it, you're, you're right. It is a little bit bizarre, and it really is just a result of a loophole, right? And the loophole is that it, a SPAC is really a merger, not an IPO. Yeah. And if you're doing a merger, you have to show the numbers that you are basing the merger on to, to all the investors. So it does, you're, you're right, it is a little bit unusual. So anyway, they put these projections, and the deal closed in April of 2020. Now, understand, in January of 2020, there was no huge upswing in SPACs. Didn't happen in February, didn't happen in March, didn't happen in April. When DraftKings was announced and closed, the deal closed in April. So it was announced in December of 2019, closed in April of 2020. The stock price doubled from $10 to $20. It was the first time that a SPAC at close had doubled in price. Never happened before because, you know, that certainty issue I spoke about. So all the investors who had invested less than a year before, who had warrants, saw that the value of their investment, $10, was worth almost $30 because of the warrants. So the price went from 10 to 20. So the shares were worth two times. And then you add the warrants, they were worth close to $10. That's another $10, almost $30. So in less than a year, investors in a public security made three times their money. And if it had not done well, they would have gotten their money back plus a return. And people, a lot of investors woke up to the fact that, hold on a second, there is an instrument out there where you can make three times your money in less than a year with basically no or very little downside risk. Where do we get into this game? Right. And in May and then in June, you saw uptick, number of people getting into the space. And so you saw a very significant growth. And so 
We went from in 2019, only about 14 billion raised to 2020, over 80 billion or close to 80. And then in 2021, this year, in the first quarter, we did over 100 billion and we're now at 120. Now, I should point out this, you know, this was too much money, too fast, too soon. And there's been a significant correction over the past few months. And so the amount of new offerings in SPACs has diminished quite significantly. Last week, there were about six. Um, so the number has come down, but there's still, as you pointed out, over 400 SPACs that have gone public this year that have raised over $120 billion. And so lots of SPACs um, are out there. But I think it's because of DraftKings, ultimately, where people saw that value. So, uh, you know, I'm, what you're describing, I think, probably has a lot of people interested in a, in a SPAC. They're learning about it. They're learning about the benefits. If I'm, if I'm in a company right now, I own the company, or I'm in the C-suite, C I'm a CFO, how, how can I tell if my company is a good, a viable SPAC candidate or not? No, that's a great question. Um, and I do want to be clear because uh, uh, most of what I've said is very positive. Like the yep. owners of SB Tech, actually the, the majority owner today is a billionaire. He just joined the Forbes list. The stock has go grown, gone significantly. I, I don't know where it is today, but it's probably, I mean, it went as high as $60 from $10. I promise um, I'll give you a chance to talk about risk. I have that question coming up, so don't worry. Okay, we'll talk about that. All right, so the question is, how do you know whether you're viable? Here's, here's the best way to think about viability. Best way to think about value, first issue is size. The reality is not everyone should be a public company. Small companies should not be public. So unfortunately, um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners who are entrepreneurs or executives in companies that are below a certain amount of revenue are unlikely to be good targets for a public company. You need a certain size, and that size typically is around $100 million of revenues or more. And the higher the better, right? Some people would argue that even 100 million is too small. You need 200 million, you need 500 million, you need a billion, okay? Now, I do want to caveat that with one uh, thing, which is that there were many companies um, that have done, that have merged into SPACs that had zero revenue at all. And why did that happen and how did that happen? It happened because of the second reason after size, which is size of industry what's known as TAM. There are lots of acronyms in the SPAC world, so SPAC and pipes. The next one is TAM. TAM stands for Total Addressable Market Size. So there are certain industries which are very large and growing, like, for example, the electric vehicle industry. We all know that at some point in the future, the vast majority of cars are probably going to be electric cars, yep. right? That's one of the reasons Tesla has the valuation that it does, which is staggering, right? Yep. It's like bigger than like all the major car companies because they're in the right industry, which is huge. And there are EV companies, for example, that went public because people figure at some point they will grow. So even though they don't have the size today, this is a bet on the future. And remember, I said that SPACs can show projections into the future, which traditional IPOs can. And if you can show in five years or six years, you're going to be a billion dollar company, then people are willing to pay for that value today. So the second is TAM. The third is growth. You've got to show a high growth rate. So, you know, if you're in a traditional state industry, not such a great thing. Um, you know, you want to be in an industry which is growing or your company within that industry is growing. 
The fourth is margins. You want to show that you have attractive margins. And by margins, I mean gross profit margins and EBITDA margins, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which is the most common metric that public companies trade on. Um, although many of these companies trade on revenues because they don't have EBITDA. So if you're thinking about going public, do you have a size either today in terms of revenues or visibility into revenues if you're in a large TAM, large total addressable market, that you have growth historically or you think will happen in the future and you have pretty decent margins today or you expect to have decent margins in the future, those are the main elements, sort of as threshold questions. And then if you meet those threshold questions, you think you have the size and the growth rate to be attractive to public company investors, because that's the, what, what you need to have, then the most important uh, variable is, do you have the numbers? Because you have to actually have the financial system in, in a SPAC. You have to do what's known as, here's another acronym, this is the longest one, <laughs> a PCAOB audit. So every private company that merges into a SPAC has to have typically two and oftentimes three years of PCAOB audits. What does PCAOB stand for? Well, you're an auditor, so you probably know, or you're in the space. It stands for Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. So after the, the 2008 uh, issues, the government set up a, um, uh, basically it's a public-private partnership, which is an oversight organization, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which provides certain metrics on how accounting firms should audit publicly traded companies. And there are certain things that they have to do or cannot do. They can't, you know, they have to be independent, et cetera. And they have to have certain financial systems in place in a company. And not all companies can meet the PCAOB requirements. So the final thing I'd say, you know, for the, especially the CFOs who are listening, is you got to make sure that your systems are strong and your reporting systems and your financial um, uh, systems so that when you do an audit, which is required, that you have, you can meet the PCAOB standards. So, yeah, and generally speaking, PCAOB means that it's going to be a national accounting firm. It's not going to be your local two-person CPA shop, and it's going to be expensive, and it's going to be involved. <laughs> like even, even my firm, we have 150 people. We don't do PCAOB audits. It's just a different skill set and requires a different, different scale of personnel in order to do that, that competently. That's right. So, so it, absolutely right. It's it's more expensive. You got there are only a few people who do it, and um, and it's a long, difficult process. So I hinted at this a second, but I do want to give you a chance because I, I know you don't want to. I know you don't want to oversell SPACs. What are the What are the risks? Where can SPACs go wrong? Maybe no cases where they have gone wrong and why. Yeah. So you know the the, the biggest negative of SPACs and, and SPACs. Uh, have critics. There are many people who don't like SPACs. Um, the, the, the biggest sort of criticism is related to what is known as the sponsor promote. Okay? So people who invest in SPACs, and we invest in SPACs, we receive a very lucrative promote. And that promote is typically 25% of the, the amount of money raised. So if you do a $100 million IPO, you get 25 million in stock, right? And if you add the 25 million in stock to the 100 million, then that becomes 
25 of 125, so it's now 20%. So it's 25% pre-money, 25% post-money, or uh, 20% post-money. So 20% mm-hmm. fully diluted. And that's a very kind of dilution to everyone. It's a dilution to the company that you merge with because there is these extra shares out there. It's a dilution to public company investors as you go forward. And so that dilution creates... Um, it, it creates a misalignment of incentives, which is the second problem. So there is a cost to SPACs, which is that you're giving up a large percentage of shares to the sponsor, which is dilutive to the original owners. They don't like it. There are ways to fix that. You can negotiate to get some of those sponsor shares, which has happened in transactions. You can get the sponsor to give up some of those shares, which has happened. You can get the sponsor to put those shares into an earnout, which has also happened. In the vast majority of cases, the there is some modification to that sponsor promote, which is quite significant. Um, so the biggest negative is the dilution associated with the sponsor promote. And then the second is this misalignment of interests, because the sponsor is basically coming into a $10 stock at a fairly low price, around a buck, a buck fifty. And it's a $10. So if the stock price falls from 10 to six or seven they're still making a lot of money. But for new investors who want to come in the company, they want the stock to go above 10, typically, if they come in at 10, um, or pipe investors. And so it does create a little bit of a a misalignment of interest. Um, And so understanding that is important. And so the issue is that it's not that it's a bad thing per se. If you can get alignment of interest, if you can negotiate correct terms, if you're an owner and entrepreneur, then it's a good deal. And that has happened many times, which is why, you know, half the time um, that has, 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 has occurred. The last thing I would say is that there is a challenge, an inherent challenge associated with SPACs in terms of investor participation. Remember, I said that the vast majority of investors in SPACs are hedge funds. Hedge funds, for the most part, are short-term oriented, financial, uh, you know, metric driven. They're not really interested, for the most part in long-term growth companies. They're overgrown day traders. <laughs> We're honest about it, right? They're overgrown day traders. You, you said it, I did. But <laughs> <laughs> so there is a real challenge in that your shareholder base in a SPAC is not the shareholder base you want for a, a, a company for the long-term. You actually want long-term fundamental investors. You want people like Fidelity and Wellington and T. Rowe Price and Newberger and long-term fundamental investors. And there's a challenge in shifting your investor base from the short-term hedge fund-oriented financial arbitrage guys into longer-term players. And, and that process can be hard, difficult, complicated, and it can affect your price. One of the reasons that um, recently the number of SPAC transactions, exit transactions has declined is because of this very issue, which is that the stock price of SPACs has not been that high because a lot of these hedge funds are dumping stocks in SPACs across the board, regardless of what it is. So even good companies, there's dumping stock, which is great for people like me who are like, we'll buy them, but not so good for the owners of the company, et cetera. So that third issue um, of the transition from short-term investors to longer-term investors is, is oftentimes a challenge. Yeah, and I guess what that also does, it creates some short-term volatility that may or may not be connected to the fundamentals of the company. Correct. That's exactly right. Whereas if you do a traditional IPO, 
you're almost 100% certain that the participants in that stock, the vast majority of participants, are long-term fundamental. Not always. And we've seen, which is worth mentioning since you mentioned day trade, is this Robin Hood effect. Yep. And I should also add that that Robin Hood effect uh, was a part of the, the, the explanation for the increase in 2020. So Robin Hood, as you know, it's an online site, effectively, an app, I guess, where people can invest. People who typically didn't have access to you know, traditional brokerage accounts could invest easily online. And you know, this is, these are people who invested like in GameStop, et cetera. And what happened is a lot of people invested in SPACs, became very hot. A lot of them lost money and they went away. So easy come, easy go. <laughs> and so retail participation, you know, has been, um, uh, or the lack of retail participation, them pulling back from the market has also contributed to some of the decline in the market. And, you know, do you want to be associated with that necessarily? I, and by the way, that doesn't necessarily happen with SPACs only. It could happen with traditional IPOs. Sure. But because SPACs are already trading, you know, it's, it's SPACs were more like to be recipients of what I call hot money from retail investors under that Robinhood effect. That's another issue that people should know. So I've been reading and hearing that the government, the U.S. government, and in particular the SEC, is, is taking a hard look at SPACs and evaluating whether or not they require their own set of regulations, more stringent oversight, some combination of the two. Are you hearing the same thing? And if so, do do you think that's likely to actually happen? And if so, do you think that's going to that's going to take sort of some of the momentum out of the SPAC movement? Well, you know, the, the SEC has expressed um, concerns about SPACs and yep. the rapid increase in SPACs, and the single biggest reason that SPACs declined in volume is because of an action taken by the SEC earlier this year, where they questioned how the SPACs were pricing their warrants, how they were treating their warrants from an accounting perspective. So this is something you and I very geekily can talk about, but are these warrants equity or debt is basically the question. The vast majority of SPACs have treated those warrants as equity, which sort of makes sense because they are in fact an equity instrument. But as a technical matter, they can be treated as debt because they are an obligation of the company that the company may have to pay for in cash. So it's very arcane rules around that. And I actually don't think the SEC cared very much. The SEC just wanted a mechanism to stop the rapid increase in SPAC IPOs. And by saying to every single SPAC out there, you have to tell us how you're treating your uh, warrants, Every single person, it led to a chilling effect where there was a less of a, um, uh, you know, it slowed it down, slowed the market down. And there were some people who said, ah, this is too much headache and, and maybe the SEC doesn't like SPACs. I have a very different view. I actually think SEC participation in regulation in SPACs is a great thing. In fact, the example that I use is that SPACs after 2015, now before 2015, uh, SPACs, were not really accepted by many law firms, by many investment banks, right? Goldman Sachs is an example, which is a very large um, underwriter of SPACs today. Wouldn't touch SPAC to a 10-foot pole before 2050. The SEC basically changed a rule. And that rule was that the right to get your money back before 2015 
was tied to the vote on the transaction. So if you wanted to get your money out of the trust account, if you're an investor in the IPO, SPAC IPO, you had to vote against the transaction. If you voted no, you got your money back. So that resulted in a lot of SPACs failing because people wanted their money back and they were like, I don't care about the deal, a lot of hedge funds, give my money back. The SEC said, you should be able to get your money back no matter what, whether you vote yes or no. And so by separating the vote from the right to redeem, it, several things happened. One is the percentage of SPAC transactions that were approved shot up to 100%, and it's been 100% since 2015. There's not been a single transaction which has not been approved, which makes sense because whether you think it's a good deal or a bad deal, you want it to happen just to have the option of, you know, if the price does go up. Two is the failure rate has fallen. So the number of SPACs which have failed has dropped dramatically. In fact, in the last two years, it's been 0%. Now, that's going to increase, and I want to be clear on that. And that's a risk in the future because there's too many SPACs and too many people who should not be doing SPACs that are not going to find a deal in two years, and they're going to fail. So the failure rate is going to increase. But for the past two years, it's been very low. And since 2015, it's under 4%. The third thing that happened is that new people came into the space. And people like Goldman Sachs and others who wouldn't touch SPACs. So today, SPACs are a well-established class. The SEC is responsible for that, in my mind. And I think protecting investors is a good thing. There have been a couple SEC actions this year. One was a fining of a SPAC who was a cannabis SPAC that tried to, that announced we're going to buy a, a space company owned by some Russians. The, the U.S. government didn't approve Russians owning a space company. And the, the SEC said, you didn't do your diligence. You should have known this was a risk. The nationality, which is like, duh, of course you should have. And they were appropriately fined. And so the SEC is acting against bad actors in my mind, right? And that's a good thing because they're acting against bad actors, takes out the bad actors and leaves good quality people. So there is a flight to quality. So I believe that, yes, the SEC regulation oversight is going to happen and will continue to happen. And they're going to ask for greater disclosures. But I think that's all a good thing because by protecting investors, if you have high quality management teams buying high quality companies, that is a good thing, right? You shouldn't have to be worried. The people who should be worried are the ones who are not doing the right thing. Yeah. I think we can see examples where the government stepping in to regulate actually does add legitimacy to a particular Form transaction or asset class, you know, I, I think the government paying a lot more attention to starting to 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 regulate uh, cryptocurrency and non fungible tokens and so forth. I think has actually helped those two asset classes. But again, by just it, it, if you bother to regulate it, then it must be real. I, I will say one very quick thing, just as a, a, a factual point. So there is a firm called Pershing Square. Um, which did the largest SPAC app. They raised a $4 billion SPAC. And they were recently sued by a former commissioner of the SEC and a very well-known law professor who said that SPACs effectively, I mean, this is a, my jargon here, but effectively a SPAC is a violation of an act known as the Investment Company Act, that a SPAC really should be regulated under the Investment Company Act. And they filed the action against Pershing Square saying that he was effectively engaged in fraud. For the first time that I've ever heard of, almost 50 law firms got together and wrote a letter to the SEC 
to say that that argument was nonsense, was bullgadash. Doesn't make any sense that that SPACs are a different investment category, are a separate investment category. They're, they do not fall under the Investment Company Act, and that the, the legal theory behind that was unacceptable. And these are these almost 50 law firms are the largest law firms in the world, right? And certainly the largest in the United States. And what that did was that reaffirms the, in my mind, the institutionalization and establishmentization of SPACs, right? Almost every major investment bank in the United States, in fact, every major investment bank, I don't think of any, has a SPAC desk. Every major law firm represents SPACs in some capacity. I mean, SPACs are here and they're here to stay. They're a very real and valuable mechanism for helping private companies go public. Can they be improved? Sure. Can we improve investor protection? Sure. Can we improve disclosure? Sure. Will that happen? Absolutely. Am I glad it's going to happen? Yes, because it strengthens it. But SPACs are not Bitcoin. SPACs, which sort of like, what's the backing, right? And they're not NFTs. They're not cryptocurrency, right? This isn't some unique, weird thing. This is just a publicly traded company that's helping a private company go public. We're talking with David Panton, and the topic is, should I form or sell my company to a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC? Um, David, we're, we're very grateful for the time that you've given us. I just have time for, a, we just have a couple more questions, and we'll let you get back to helping other people with SPACs and other transactions. One, But one question I wanted to make sure to get to is, what is the timeline for a SPAC looks like? If, 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 if I'm leading a company, I decide that I want to go down the road and I think that my company qualifies in terms of revenue and TAM and, and so forth. What does a timeline look like from deciding I want to do a SPAC to actually executing one? That's a great question. So one of the advantages that I mentioned earlier of a SPAC versus a traditional um, IPO is the speed that you can actually do a SPAC in a, in a shorter time period than a traditional IPO. Um, there is a company here in Atlanta called Intercontinental Exchange, ICE. They own a company actually, a crypto company, I guess, uh, or a crypto exchange called Bakt, B-A-K-K-T. And it was a subsidiary. They had investments from other folks and they were trying to decide what to do with it. And a SPAC approached them and said, let's take it public. And they said, oh, that's interesting. And from the day they were approached to the day when they announced a deal was less than three months. So in three months, they were able to do their uh, PCOB audits. They were able to negotiate the deal, structure the deal, get it done which is unheard of in the traditional IPO world. Traditional IPOs take a year, two years to from beginning to end. Now, three months is on the, the shortest end of the spectrum. Um, I don't, I can't imagine it, a SPAC deal from beginning to end being done in less than Results three months. not typical. That's <laughs> right, <laughs> not at all typical. Um, what is more typical is, is four months, five months, six months, seven months, could take as much as a year, but in SPACs, I would say three to six months is a reasonable time in order to get everything done. Because remember, they're on a clock, right? They typically have 24 months in which to do a deal. So there's a huge incentive to move quickly. And as a result, that is one of the advantages. And so timing, I'd say minimum three months could be as much as a year, more likely six to eight months. And in terms of activity, what needs to be done is uh, really focus on making sure that these PCAOB audits are done 
is the most important element, but also putting together your projections and, you know, being able to tell the story of the business. So one question I'm very curious about is celebrities and high profile investors seem to like SPACs. Why is that? Is that a fashion thing? Is it, is it particularly well suited to very high net worth individuals? Why is that? No, it's a great question. I, I, I don't, I can't say for sure why that is, but here, here, here's my answer. Um, one is that it's actually a relatively, SPACs are a relatively easy way to get into, um, into the capital markets, right? Uh, with a relatively small amount of money, uh, the sponsor capital can be for $100 million, $2 or $3 million. You're able to be the CEO of a public traded company, which has $100 million or you know, $200 million to invest. And let me tell you what's wrong with having $200 million to invest. Not a single thing. <laughs> so if you can afford to do it, um, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and a lot of celebrities have a few million dollars which they can leverage. So they like the leverage ability, they like the relatively low cash, and then of course the return is huge. You're investing a few million dollars and you're getting a huge chunk. So returns make sense. And then I'd say the final thing is that the um there is a proven track record of wealth creation in public companies through uh celebrity participation. So in the DraftKings example I told you earlier, one of the things they did was after they went public, they brought on as an advisor, a guy by the name of Michael Jordan, who if you think about sports and gambling, who was <laughs> right. like the best known sports person who's really known for gambling, it's Michael Jordan. So Michael Jordan being associated with the stock literally went up 20 or 30% by his announcement. So celebrities actually do add value. And there are other examples. Weight Watchers brought on Oprah Winfrey. Stock went up. Um, you know, there have been a number of celebrities associated with brand. Maybe look at people like Rihanna, who has Fenty. The value of Fenty is very high because of her celebrity status. P. Diddy has um, uh, Ciroc Vodka, which used to be a, you know, number 10, 15 vodka. Now it's a number you know, top three vodka because of P. Diddy's celebrity status. So celebrity status does actually add significant value or can add significant value to certain products and certain companies. And there is value in that. So you're, you're, you're able to not just get the financial returns because investing relatively little and getting the upside of the sponsor promote, but you're also able to leverage your status to, in theory, you know, generate um even more returns because of the celebrities that so that's my my thesis david we could we could go on a long time for the specs are obviously very complicated they're very in-depth but uh there's only so much free advice i can impose on you to give to our listeners so um if you know there are probably questions we didn't get to or questions that we could have gone into more depth on if one of our listeners wants to contact you for more information about this maybe they're interested in creating or invest i'm sorry uh, selling into a spac can they contact you? And if so, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the best way to contact me is by email. And it's dpanton, D as in David, P-A-N-T-O-N. P as in powerful, A as in athletic, N as in nice. T as in tall, O as in outstanding, and N as in nice. dpanton at navigationcapital.com. 
I like that. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. And I'd like to thank David Panton so much for sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. If you'd like to engage with me on social media and with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.